one of the things that I've been sitting with is going, what, what is a big enough challenge that will almost certainly defeat me? That actually becomes a more, for me anyway, that's more of a thrill than what's the thing I can reach for to, to, to win and to, to get a trophy at. What should you do knowing that you, you will most almost certainly fail? What's important enough to take on knowing that you will almost certainly fail? You're listening to The Breakdown with me, Chris Clearfield. The Breakdown is a podcast where we connect with business owners and experts to hear their perspectives on this crazy, complex world. I'm your host and fellow learner, and I'm glad you're here. I'm really excited to share my conversation with Michael Bungay-Stanier. Michael is a really thoughtful, humble, and impressive guy. He lives in Toronto. He founded a company called Box of Crayons, which helps organizations transform from being advice-driven to being curiosity-led. And his two most recent books, The Advice Trap and The Coaching Habit, are both really practical and fantastic tools for leaders looking to ask better questions and and use those better questions to have a real impact in the quality of work that people around them do and the quality of solutions to problems that they arrive at. And beyond that, Michael is just a, a himself a curious and delightful human being. And we have a, a, a really interesting and as many of my conversations end up being pretty wide-ranging conversation from poetry and literature to what it really means to have impact in the world and and how we can really make meaningful change. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Michael. So I'm Michael Bungay-Stanier. I'm probably best known for a book I wrote four years ago called The Coaching Habit. It's a gone on to sell about a million copies so far and has become the classic coaching book of the 21st century. Um, but the the very quick bio is I'm Australian by birth, grew up in um, Canberra, the national capital of Australia, went to school and high school, their university, in fact, um, at the ANU, Australian National University, where I did a arts law undergraduate degree, because law is an undergraduate degree in Australia. So I did a one of my degrees was in literature and one of them was in law. Literature I loved and I was excellent at. Law I didn't love and I wasn't much good at. But you know how law has that, if you do a law degree, you're kind of pulled into this career path of becoming a lawyer. Well, I was saved from that um, by becoming a Rhodes Scholar. And that uh, took me out of law school and took me to England. And honestly, law school, I finished law school being sued by one of my law school professors for defamation. So it really wasn't going that well. Um, but I got to Oxford, did a master's degree in literature at Oxford. But really important thing was I met Marcella, my wife there. We've been a couple now for 30 years. And uh, with her doing her PhD at Oxford, I didn't rush back to Australia, but went, okay, now what? and uh, started my working career finally in the world of innovation and creativity. So helping, uh, working with an agency, helping companies and products invent stuff. So they'd come and go, right, we need to launch a new thing. And we would say, we'll help you. So um, that was a fantastic experience, but ultimately not that fulfilling because, you know, the fact that I can boast about playing a very small role in inventing stuff across pizza, Sounds cool, but actually is not what you actually want to boast about in terms of the work you do, or at least I don't. So I went from there to um, the world of change and organizational change because I had been made curious as to why we kept coming up with all these awesome ideas at this innovation company. And they would go back into the corporation we were working for and vanish. And it just wouldn't make any progress. So I'm like, okay, so what don't we understand about how change happens in the world? And uh, worked there for a while, first in London, and then went uh, set up an office with them in Boston. Um, Boston was hard because we arrived just as the economy crashed. And uh, after a few years, I left, headed up to Toronto, where I now live. 
And um, after a, a, a brief flurry, company that would become Box of Crayons. And I worked in Box of Crayons for close to 20 years. It's a learning and development company that helps, this is how we talk about it now, helps organizations advice-driven to curiosity-led. We train tens of thousands of managers um, every year to be more coach-like, to use curiosity as a force for leadership. Um, but a year or so ago, I left being the CEO of that company. I handed it over to uh, somebody who'd come up through the ranks and is, <laughs> was instantly a better CEO than I will ever was or will be. Um, and uh, for the last year and a half, I've been kind of figuring out what's next for me. Um, and it's to help people be a force for change. So giving people the confidence and the competence and the courage to say, look, not only am I working on myself to grow, but I'm doing it for the, the bigger game of making this world a better place. So I help people be a force for change. And I do that through, you know, writing books, um, uh, some online training that we have, uh, an online membership site that we're developing that helps people work together to make progress on the stuff that matters to them. That's, uh, you know, that's kind of ticking off the, the slightly boring resume, but that's kind of what it is. Interesting. What, what makes you, what makes you go to boring with that? Uh, you know, because when you when you're asked so, what's your history? You tend to leap from peak to peak. Here I was in this job. Here I was in this country. Here's what I did. Here's what I did. Here's what I did. But you know, we're all more interesting than our work resume, and I have a bias towards how stories of failure and struggle are far more illuminating and more interesting uh, than stories of success. You know, I think it was, um, who was it, Jane Austen, I think maybe in Pride and Prejudice, she says, all, f all happy families are the same, but all unhappy families are interestingly different. And it's, so um, it's not Jane Austen. It's, um, I'm not 100% sure Charlotte about Bronte, this. Maybe? But no, it's a, a Russian author and it's, oh, it's like Dostoevsky, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think it's Dostoevsky. Jane Austen, Russian author, almost the same. <laughs> All the same. Um, yeah. And, uh, or maybe it's even Tolstoy, but no, who knows? It could be. It's a writer. <laughs> He's a writer. You can tell I studied literature a while ago now. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, it, it would be great. I mean, it'd be interesting if at the start of a podcast or interview like this, you said to somebody, tell me the four most interesting mistakes you've made and how they've shaped you. That is far more interesting for most people than me going, hey, I've sold a million copies of my book. Everyone's like, good on you, Michael. <laughs> Delighted for you. Don't really care. And I'm like, hey, I was a Rhodes Scholar. Everyone's like, ah, that's awesome. I'll never be a Rhodes Scholar, so don't really care. So even as I talk to people about all these things, what I'm doing is I'm subtly alienating myself <laughs> from everybody. But when I go, hey, look, let me tell you about the time where I took this job in Boston and it was miserable for three years and I struggled and they didn't eventually fire me. I really wanted them to fire me. So I get a payout, but no, eventually I had to quit and leave. Uh, you know, what about this time when I tried to, uh, I spent three years trying to get a publisher to pick up my book and, uh, you know, kept getting rejected, finally self-published it and it went off and did well. But, you know, three years probably going, yeah, it's still not a good idea for a book that becomes a much more interesting story to, to tell because everybody can um, recognize struggle and failure because everybody struggles and fails. But when you boast about your trophies, your trophies are kind of your trophies and everyone's like, yeah, good on you. It's like when you go and hear an inspirational speaker and they go, I walked up Mount Everest. And on the one hand, you're like, you're amazing because you walked up Mount Everest and you don't have any legs or whatever it might be. But on the other hand, you're like, but that, you know, I, I'm never going to do that. So your lessons on perseverance and resilience and leadership, they never quite, they never quite resonate. Yeah. And I, I think, let me share with you one thing um, that, that I've been thinking about as I prepared for this podcast and as I read your work, which is like, I actually felt kind of nervous about doing this interview with you, which is, is not a usual thing for me. I love, you know, I love talking with people. I, I, um, uh, and obviously you're, you're, I mean, 
you can read any of your stuff. You can see anything you've put out there. Um, you know, it, it's quite clear that you're a, um, an ex an accessible uh, person, right? Oh, that's that's not. I'm trying not to have that image. I'm trying to come across as an aloof diva. So <laughs> an aloof diva. Man, I've been yeah. totally screwing this up so far. But never mind. I'll I'll keep working on it. Well, and and what I felt uncomfortable about, honestly, is that. Um, you are doing the kind of things that I want to do and and that I have and I was talking with my my life partner about this last night like I I have had this period um I, I think in my life I've uh, you know just like you were talking about like I've had these peaks right like I I went to Harvard I got to do really interesting stuff there I got to do really interesting stuff in high school I started a, a career after Harvard and finance that at, at first was really interesting. It eventually, I, I didn't resonate with me eventually. It was not my calling, but it also paid really well. And so I, I had all these kind of touch points. And one of the things I've realized is that in a lot of this stuff, so much of the way I've operated was to be smart or to be out there and then to wait for someone to recognize me and to wait for someone to say, you know, yes, you're you're worthy. You're worth it. You're, it's kind of been a very external um, external thing. And, you know, the book that Andras and I wrote, Meltdown, um, I'm immensely proud of. Uh, you know, first there was the recognition of it, right? I mean, pub you know, you're talking about the struggle to publish. This was published by Penguin Press. Like, it's hard to get right. much that's a, more that's a really of a great publisher. You, you should yeah. feel proud about that. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and yet, my whole mental model of the world was like, all right, we wrote this book. We think it's really good. I'm going to wait for it to come out. And then once it comes out, people are going to start calling me. People are, you know, that's that the, the phone's going to start ringing. And, and so I can do the work I want to do, helping companies navigate these kinds of, of, of issues around uh, complexity and, and such. And lo and behold, that did not happen. And it did not happen for so many good reasons. Yeah, but um, you're, I mean, you're the only person that hasn't happened for everybody else. That happens all the time. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But what I what I realized and, and what I was talking with my, my partner about yesterday was that there was about a year and a half, two years after the book came out where I was just um, really, I just, I would put it like this. I was, I was committed to playing small because I was still waiting for somebody to come in and kind of recognize and rescue me yeah totally. um and i think that that i have a lot of um a lot of grief around that and um also you know this is really funny because of course your whole thing is coaching and curiosity rather than judgment but i was like well it, it, this sometimes happens with people that I, I, in my mental model, are particularly perceptive. I'm like, well, 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 will Michael figure out that this thing has been happening with me and like judge me for it? Which is like a hilarious, I mean, a hilarious line of thought, right? Because, <laughs> you know, we're all the main characters in our own story and we're all supporting characters in everyone else's story. You're not, if you're not lucky. sitting there thinking. If we're that you, lucky, if we're lucky. you get to be a support. I mean, who is, I don't know who said this, but somebody said, I used to worry what people thought of me. And then I realized nobody thought of me because they're all right. thinking of themselves. And I'm like, that yeah. is such a freeing thing. It's just like, nobody cares. So freeing. Just so freeing. Cares. And you know, on the one hand, it's it's disappointing because nobody cares. You're like, hey, nah. and apparently nobody cares. Um, on the other hand, it's like deeply liberating as well. It's like, actually, nobody really cares. So why not, why not go out and do something cool? Because succeed, fail, nobody really cares. Right, right, totally. It, 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 and that's exactly it. And I think that's, you know, for me, it, taking these steps to kind of now walk my own path, uh, I have the realization that, you know, the, the, the upside is that I am the one that, I mean, particularly as a privileged white male, um, I am the one that is, responsible for my own success and that's very liberate, liberating but it's also terrifying right because i am also the flip side of that is i am also the one that 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 can stand in my own way um sure. yeah and, and you know there's there's a subtle slipperiness in that comparison between success and standing in your own way because standing in your way means getting in the way or could mean getting in the way of you doing the work 
success or failure is just the outcome of you doing the work and that you don't right. actually get to control. I, I was right. just looking up while you were talking a poem from Rilke that you may know. I, I hadn't come across it. <clears throat> like I heard it the other day at a conference and I loved it. It's called, um, what's it called? The Man Watching. And uh, talks about, um, I'm going to just read some of the lines from it, which is like, uh, da, 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 da. what we triumph over is the small and the success itself makes us petty. I love that. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's actually in winning that you are, are reduced. It's like, it's like John Donne or something, one of these meta metaphorical, metaphysical paradoxes. But in the, the last three lines I love, and I've got them written out for myself, which is winning does not tempt him. His growth is to be the deeply defeated by ever greater things. So one of the things that I've been sitting with is going, what, what is a big enough challenge that will almost certainly defeat me? That actually becomes a more, for me anyway, that's more of a thrill than what's the thing I can reach for to, to, to win and to, to get a trophy at. It, it, it is um, a more nuanced, you know, the, the, the question that sometimes you get asked, which is, well, if you, if you knew you could not fail, what would you do? And I'm like, that, that's, that's an okay question. But I think it's a much more interesting question to ask, what, what should you do knowing that you will, you will most almost certainly fail? What's important enough to take on knowing that you will almost certainly fail? And that makes me go, <laughs> I don't know. But it, it helps detach me from, you know, some of the kind of FOMO or envy or whatever you get when you, when you look at other people. I mean, I, here's a quick story. So some years ago, um, Renee Brown rang me up and had a chat with me about tips on being a keynote speaker. So clearly she's gone on and, you know, probably took none of my advice and has done very well by taking none of my advice around that. But as I look at Renee, uh, you know, whose email I no longer have, or at least doesn't get a response. Um, I'm like, ah, oh, you know, I've got some of that. I'd like to have that, you know, influence and status and, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and, you know, I just, I, I just have that, but I also am going, okay, that's kind of the, the temptation, but it's not the interesting thing. The interesting thing is what can I be, what's the thing that I could be defeated at? That's the, that's the marrow in the bone for me. Yeah. Well, and, and I think there's, there's something, uh, there's some very deep piece of wisdom in, in what you just shared, which I just kind of want to say for myself to, to hear how it lands, which is, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's this idea that no matter where you go, there you are, right? It's, it's the sort of like, as you progress, as you taste success, like you're just, we humans, we're just, we're, we're, we're on the hedonic treadmill, right? We're just always moving the goalposts with us. And one of the things that's happened with me recently is that I have just from a business perspective started, um, uh, working, uh, it's hard. It's even hard for me to say, like I've chosen a niche that I'm going to work with at least for the next year or so, which is lawyers. Um, and I love lawyers. Like I, I think that they are, I've always loved the law. My brain is built to like, think about and interpret rules. I got some very good career advice when I was a young person from a lawyer saying, you really shouldn't go be a lawyer, Chris, because you know, you're not that good at dotting your I's and crossing your T's. And, and if you don't do that well as a lawyer, you get in trouble and then you get this bar. And I was like, okay, good. Like, let me go do, <laughs> do something else. Right. Um, but in coming back to that, I mean, just sharing that this is a niche that I'm working with feels like it closes off so many doors, right? It feels like it, 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 there's a story that it, it closes off things. Well, it does. And that's the point of choosing. That's the point. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you, you get to celebrate that. You get to celebrate closing the right. doors. It's actually, right. that, that's not a, that's not a bug. That's a feature. Yes, exactly. But I'll tell you the door that it feels like I'm worried about it closing off is the ability to 
whatever, write, write a big public facing book like Meltdown or something like that. And I think that that is just a silly story. Um, but the thing that I have been working on is like, just remembering to stay curious and remembering that right now I'm walking a path and, and there is never a point I'm going to get to where that path is over, right? I'm always going to be walking that path. And I think that's very much, um, very much what I hear in, in, in your kind of talking about what the marrow is for you. The marrow is to, to set it up. So you're always walking that path and always yeah. doing the thing that's risky. Well, just to- I mean, I've I've got a more I've got a wiring towards enjoying the edge and the risk and and being fairly um, resilient around failure. So my thing is not right for everybody, but that's what it's interesting for me. And you know, the the real call is, you know, what is what's what's ambition for you? <laughs> you know, what's what's stepping out to the edge of who you are? That looks so different for everybody, but. Um, there's that paradox that by by finding focus and commitment, you're actually more likely to increase fulfillment and expand potentiality, even though that focusing feels like it's limiting me. It's like, no, no, no. What it's doing is it's it's concentrating who you are and what you're doing. But you 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 know, there there are some things where you're like, if I'm choosing a niche of a lawyer to work lawyers to work with, then you are closing you're like you're like, it means I'm not working with circus clowns. I'm not gonna market to circus clowns, I'm not gonna hang out at circuses, I'm not gonna call my friends up and going, Do you know any clowns? Because I need some work. But you know, writing a book <laughs> feels like it stands next to or has the potential to stand next to working with lawyers. And the question that I take from Roger Martin, who I talk about a little bit in the coaching habit book as well is um, what needs to be true for you to write a big public facing book and to serve lawyers. Right. And you, it's, it's not a, can you, can't you do it? Because who knows? It's like, what needs to be true for you to be able to do both? Right. And it could be that you like nothing. This is actually an impossible thing to hold in tension with each other. But if you ask that question, what needs to be true, that for me is such a powerful question because it takes you into the future and it makes you go yes. start building back from the future where you've found a solution and, and ideas and options start opening for you. Yeah, I love I love that question. Um, Roger was my my previous interview, E, interviewee. He's got his new book out, which I haven't got yet. I've ordered it, but it hasn't uh, shown up. So I'm excited to get into it. I love it. It's fabulous. Um, it's sort of like, um, I mean, it's kind of like the opposable mind, but applied to the the American political economy. And yeah. it's really, it's it's delight, it's delightful. And it's optimistic um, in a, around a subject which I think is hard to be optimistic around. Yeah. You want to have that Stockdale-esque stance, which is, grounded in the reality of what's happening now, but to hold a, a, a sense of optimism that things will get better. Yeah, and I think, as and, and, and it's hard to see sometimes, but a sense of optimism that even the people that you disagree the most with are are doing their best. And they are they are acting in a way that, that you know, for 99% of them, um, it's just trying to keep themselves safe. It's just trying to keep themselves um yeah, it's that it's that curiosity stance, which which I want to ask you about, because I, I um, you know, perhaps subconsciously influenced by the coaching habit. But but I think from a lot of the work we did with Meltdown, I sort of have have started articulating the same thing that you just articulated, which is that curiosity is the kind of core skill that um organizations need to solve to solve problems today i'm I'm curious how about your if you could talk a little bit about your journey to that um that kind of flag in the sand so in some ways it's circular um you know my with my first job starting off in the space of innovation and creativity that's fueled by a sense of curiosity a sense of whatever is whatever we got now we need to find the next thing so you have to be fueled by curiosity because it was 
that first job was um, consumer-based innovation, meaning you go and talk to people, go, what's going on with you? Who are you? What, what's hard for you? And then you try and listen in the cracks to figure out what's hard or not hard for them. And then go, let me see if I can invent some solutions that make their life better. So it's kind of really grounded in um, a process of expansion and then focus, you know, evolve and then evolve as you try and be creative around it and, and driven by curiosity. You know, I started, when I started Box of Crayons, you know, I started in a classic solopreneur sort of way, which is like, it's just me. I got fired from my last job. I just need work to try and pay bills. You know, my business plan is find somebody with a wallet and then right. say yes to whatever they they need. Um, but over, over time, I figured out that sweet spot for me, which is like, what's something that irritates me? And the way coaching was taught in the in the world and in organizations in particular irritated me because like it's just taking life coaching and then putting it into an organization and going it's corporate coaching we teach you exactly the same but we just substitute we add the word organizational every four paragraphs and i'm like that just misunderstands a whole bunch of stuff about organizations and power and and types of relationships all sorts of stuff so i was irritated by it I had, a, I had a contrary, interesting, defendable position around an alternative to that, um, which is like teaching managers to be coach-like rather than coaches and to teach them to, that they could do this in 10 minutes or less. And there was a market for it. So I could actually sell it and make a living and build a company from it. So my focus was less on curiosity and more on solving that specific thing, which is like, I want to make more managers more coach-like so that they can make their organization a better place to be for themselves and for the people that they interact with. And can, can, I, can I interject and ask a question? Because I think one thing that you've done, which is very, is very subtle and I want to highlight in your description, is you created a product, right? You didn't create a, hey, I'm a smart guy. I'm going to help you think about this. You created a, a, a real product that was kind of, obviously, you were important to it, but, but also you weren't critical to it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was a deliberate choice to not make the brand me, but to make the brand box of crayons and the intellectual property associated with that. And I had the good luck to hear a guy called Dan Sullivan, who's a Toronto based guy who created something called strategic coach. And right at a very early, first year of box of crayons being in existence, I just went to some talk he was giving and he just said, here are the three phases of, of growth. The first thing is you go, I am a dentist and you kind of collapse the, the, the profession into the job into you. I am a thing. The second phase is I am an entrepreneur who practices dentistry. So you realize that you're not just a technician, you're a business person who needs to understand selling and money and systems and so that you can grow your business. And then the third phase is, I am an entrepreneur who creates intellectual property around dentistry because with IP, you have the capacity to scale because ideas then you're, you're able to then build programs and you're allowed to write books and you're allowed to do stuff that separates it out from look what I can do in the moment to I've externalized what I, I think about and how I think now we can sell that to you or license that to you or whatever it might be. So really early on, I heard that and I just happened to have a good gift for being able to generate IP. Like I have a turn of phrase and I have a way of thinking in patterns that um, are often some of the things that underlie that kind of soft IP of here are my ideas, you know, different from here are my algorithms, which is like what I can't create an algorithm. I don't even know what an algorithm is, but that, uh, that's a different type of IP. There's all sorts of different types of IP, but, but yeah, that's, 
all of which to say, yes. <laughs> yes, Chris, that's one of the things I did <laughs> in answer to your question. I'll stop rabbiting on. <laughs> well, it's I, it's funny because you said I didn't create an algorithm, but but actually you did. It's just a, a, a an algorithm that's operated by sure. humans. Yeah, um, that's true. That is true. Uh, yeah, it's a very slow algorithm, right? It's like, <laughs> And what else? Um, exactly. <laughs> and and so and and that is, I think, I mean, there's there's a real, um, um, you know, vision in that. I'm I I I for one, I'm glad that you ran into Dan at that moment because I think that it's a uh, it's meant that your work has had uh, a very different impact than it would have been would have otherwise had. Yeah, it it it's really helpful. All these, you know. Inspiration is when your past makes sense. <laughs> and so there's all these little things that have fueled decisions I've made that have helped the book be successful and the company be successful and the like. And of course, there's luck. There's a whole lot of luck involved. I mean, yes. You know, um, in very early days at Box of Crayons, um, I was running a public session trying to get people interested in our programs. And I just happened to have got the woman who made the decisions to buy coaching programs for one of Canada's four big banks. And, you know, we ran this thing. And at the end of it, she's like, this is great. This is what I've been looking for. Look, can you, can you write a proposal? Um, but you'll need to get it to me by the end of the day. And can you invoice me for the first hundred thousand dollars? Cause I, cause my budget cycle ends on Friday and I need to get it spent. And I was like, sure, sure. I think I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> totally ruined me for every other sales conversation ever. Which is like, totally. what do you mean it takes more than twenty four hours to close a deal? Like, <laughs> totally. Ridiculous. <laughs> but you know, there's, there's and there's a way that luck is this combination of hard work and privilege and being in the right place at the right time and all of that. So you you do to an extent shape your own luck. Um, but um, but I've had I've had good luck along the way helped helped along by some of those decisions I've made. Well, well yeah, and, and and some of I mean some of the people and some of the networks. I mean Toronto is a really interesting place because it is sort of both big and small. Yeah. It is um big enough that you have these really, really kind of um you know people with lots of of uh gravitas and real like I hate the term thought leaders, but pe people, real pioneers, people who are, are, are plowing new ground and it's small enough in that they all know each other. And I think that's a really, an interesting, um, an interesting setup. Sure. Yeah, I agree. And so you said that, that, you know, you didn't start out to, to, to sort of carry the, the, the cross of curiosity to companies, <laughs> but, but when did you, yeah. when did you pick that up? So that really emerged in the last three or four years, I think. And in part, it emerged because um, Shannon, who's the woman who is now the CEO at Box of Crayons, she started seeing the, the limitations to claiming coaching. Being, claiming, claiming the space of and having the really clear articulation of what we do, we teach 10-minute coaching to busy managers and leaders sold a lot of programs for us because it just made people interesting. And they're like, what does that mean? How do you teach somebody that they can coach so they can coach in 10 minutes or less? We're like, we can do that for you. Right. But um, our business model started to break because we were honestly a little bit, particularly when the book came out and did so well, we were then besieged by people calling us up going, can you run a workshop here or run a workshop there? And we didn't have the systems and the structure to efficiently manage a lot of inquiries. And we also started seeing that um, coaching keeps you locked in at a certain level in an organization. You know, it's the conversation about coaching happens at a, let's call it a VP level, but not a senior VP level or not a C-suite level. In, in bigger organizations. That's just like, they're thinking about culture, they're thinking about strategy, but coaching and having our people be more coach-like is a tactic to deliver tactic, against yeah. something around that. And what coaching does 
And so Box of Crayons went through a repositioning from we teach busy managers to coach in 10 minutes or less to we help organizations move from advice-driven to curiosity-led. It's claiming a higher, deeper, more abstract space, which we felt was interesting and important and defendable and differentiating and all that good stuff. So, and, and also would allow Box of Crayons to develop a broader range of offerings than just coaching skills. Coaching skills is still the thing that we teach the most of, but you know, in, in a world where there are now conversations about unconscious bias and Black Lives Matter, and you know, in the good old days where you used to walk down a plane and you'd walk through business class and you'd look around and it's like, look, it's a whole bunch of people who actually look like me, kind of old white men. And we're like, not as, not as, not as colorful shirts, not but. as colorful shirts, but you know, apart from the shirts um, and the tattoos, I take a lot of those, those kind of boxes, which is like, you know, I'm a, I'm a middle-class, middle-aged, overeducated, tall, white, straight guy. And, um, and, you know, organizational leadership is still dominated by that. So there is this, um, you know, this reckoning we've had in 2020 around unconscious bias, around diversity and inclusion at, at another level. And if Box of Crayons is going, we teach 10-minute coaching, we don't get to be part of that conversation, part of that solution. If we say we help organizations move from advice-driven to curiosity-led, we can actually say, look, we have some thoughts around how curiosity can help be part of addressing unconscious bias about addressing diversity and inclusion, because it is the foundation for to be inclusive, which is like to, to not just have the numbers, diversity, I've got the numbers, inclusion, they're part of that. They're a genuine part of the mix. Yeah. It has to be, has to come first of all from a curiosity, you know, what Martin Buber talks about that shift from an I it relationship to an I thou relationship that I thou relationship has to be driven by a curiosity. You'd be over on the other side going, who are you? What matters to you? I think for, um, can I share my kind of journey to, to curiosity? Sure. So I think for me, I mean, personally, curiosity is one of my values and, and, and strengths. Um, in fact, you know, if you do those little, the little, strength finders, et cetera, et cetera, that, that, you know, there's 80 of them you can do and they all use different words to describe <laughs> the same thing, but, but curiosity is always kind of far up there for me. Um, but one of the things as, as I started to get better at doing, uh, consulting work and connecting with organizations who were, you know, I started out with this idea that we were going to help organizations manage complexity, but it, nobody there's not that that is a um that's not an articulated problem anybody has even correct. though it's it is at the heart of yes. a whole bunch of stuff yes it's like nobody's going you know what we just we're managing this as it's a machine rather than the nuances of complexity so how do we manage right. that differently <laughs> right yes ex ex exactly and that only took me like a year and a half to to figure out basically <laughs> um but having figured that out i i think what a couple of consequences came from that um one is i realized how naive uh i'll just speak for myself i won't i won't throw andra i won't drag andrash under the naive bus with me but but how naive i was in looking at the kind of the way that meltdown was solution oriented and thinking that that made it practical um you know so we write about the problem of complexity and, and then we provide solutions that i think are very viable solutions but i think for many organizations they are as far out of reach as if you said well all you've got to do is locate your headquarters on the moon and it's like what like well, yeah, that'll solve all the communication problems you have because you'll be able to see everything because you'll be on the moon, right? It's right. Um, 
And, you know, because even a solution that to me, and also this is part of just the organizational culture that I have grown up in professionally, even something like, oh, well, how do you get better at this? Well, you just talk about your, your mistakes and then you can learn from them. Um, and it's like you write them down. It'll be interesting to watch you bring some of this to the world of lawyers, which are yes, quite a fair way away from that. I mean, I worked, you know, as a summer clerk in my law school, you work as a lawyer and you like record every six minutes of the work you do, which is, a, which is about as opposite to an understanding of complexity as you can possibly get in the world. I mean, it's, it is, we have built this firm to be a machine that generates money. Totally. Well, and, and can we, can we kind of, um, well, let me, let me, I'd like to finish my thought and then I can, Sorry. and then I'd like to nerd out about that. No, 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 not at all. Um, Cause I think you've hit I'm on. Gonna, I'm going to look up moonhq.com and see if it's available for you. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, because I, I didn't have a sense of how deep the kind of, um, I'll just say the ego-driven risk aversion was uh, at these places, and I, I don't I don't mean that in a pejorative way, just in a in a kind of a factual way. At at so many places, how hard it was for people to be vulnerable, how hard it was for I mean, the act of saying I don't know is a, a tremendous act of courage and subservience in many, uh, or not subservience, uh, courage and and su subversiveness in many. In servant leadership, yes, I agree. Yeah, yeah. And so kind of what I realized after starting to sink my teeth into this was was two things. One, that I actually didn't know. And so that was really interesting um, that I would, I remember there was, I was doing a workshop with a, a group of pretty senior folks at a, you know, a, a, a big oil company. And I, I said something like, you know, I, I have the sense and I have, in fact, started to believe that I am here to provide an answer. But but in fact, I, I am not because I don't know the answer. Um, you guys have been some of you have been working at this company for longer than I've been alive. And uh, which was true. And even if I did know the answer, if I told you guys, you wouldn't believe me because you would be kind of rightfully skeptical. Like, who's this who's this jerk that's telling us how how this thing should be, you know, should happen. And that was a big, that was a big shift for me. And that was a very, um, that was, I think, a moment of, of transformation for me. Um, to your, to your point about lawyers that I think the thing there, I mean, lawyers are risk averse sort of even more so in, in, in many ways. And I think you're exactly right. I think the, um, the whole legal profession, and I don't want to paint too broad a brush, but I'll paint a very broad brush. The legal profession is exactly designed as a, as a, a deterministic, you know, um, automaton basically. Right. Um, and I think what's interesting now is that that model is in the process of breaking. And I think that the, the firms that are going to survive, whether they are, you know, one person, solo practitioners or, some of the most prestigious law firms in the world, yeah. those are the ones that are going to go from their job is knowing the answer to their job is to, you know, adapt sense and respond to the changing business model. So that's how I have come to I'd it. I'd be terrified if I was a lawyer because with AI, it's, it's minutes away from somebody being able to go, hey, Siri, what's the case law for this? <laughs> and you're going to be 95% of your answer generated immediately. And right. You know, why do you need a junior lawyer to spend hours researching anything? Right. And, and the other thing that's happening, just to, to keep nerding out about this, this profession for a moment, you know, the other thing that's happening is law has essentially had a legal monopoly on law for a long time. And, and that is breaking. You see, you know, new technology companies entering. You see places like PwC and Deloitte standing up essentially technology practices designed from the ground up to give legal advice and and the kind of rules around that are are changing and i think that's that's really fascinating so um and i also think on a on a personal level you know one of the things i i see my my the way that i can have impact is by bringing people um ease and understanding about about what they're doing and i think lawyers are stressed out by and large and i think that we can make their lives better um that's better for, for them and their clients and everybody. Yeah. 
I'm not sure I've got anything to say other than I agree. <laughs> Is there anything you, you want to share or what's, what's, uh, what's coming up for you? Well, let me ask you this. Knowing what you know about complexity, having gone through the, I know a lot, oh, I know less than I thought I know. Oh, I do. I know some stuff now, which is a classic learning cycle that we've, we all go through. If you were giving guidance to people to say, here's how you become a force for change. Here's how you make a difference in your world. Where would you get people to start? I think that, um, I would get people to start with by recognizing the need for by more consciously taking advantage of of kind of two sides of the of of the polarity of structure and and kind of messy human um I think that many people organizations um society technologies operate very much ex like spend most of their time operating in one of those polarities so the you know the structure polarity is bureaucracy um the kind of the the sort of messy human polarity is the way that you know organizations leaders make decisions so much of the time they show up they are asked a question or there's a question put before them and they're like, well, I think we should do, you know, the, the, the hippo, the hippo effect, the highest paid person's opinion. Um, I think we should do X. And then everybody's like, yeah, X sounds good. Oh, X. Yeah, we should do X. So, uh, and, and, and I think that there is tremendous value in taking the best of those two approaches. Right. Um, realizing that change is a human problem um change affects us change is a threatening thing and and using structure to understand it to to build a mental model of it and to make it as non-threatening as possible yeah it's really interesting i think just as as an example to and this is something that i've been doing with a group of lawyers recently that that many of them have very different interests going into a question around what what they should work on and what's important um in terms of like let's just say an innovation project and i think if you have people talking on the level of advocacy then you lose a lot and so in just from a very practical perspective instead of starting with well what do you think we should do starting with a more kind of a less um I don't know if triggering or activating a less advocacy based question of like, well, I mean, this, this goes back to the Roger Martin thing we were talking about earlier, like, well, what are the properties of a, of an effective solution here? And what are the properties of a problem that we want to work on? And then you can articulate those in a less charged way and then get to a much better answer. Nice. That's very wise. Um, you know, helping people see, I mean, it's that classic, uh, you know, the fish swimming in the water and the other fish swimming by going, how's the water? And everybody goes, oh, it's water. Right. <laughs> basically going, let's just talk about the water for a little bit before yeah. we talk about the swimming in the water that we, we're, we're all committed to doing. Yeah. Yes. Well, and, and I think, you know, for me, um, and this I think is one of the reasons your, your books resonated with me is that um, there's so much value in really seeing what's happening clearly. And I think many of us um, are impatient to get to the answer, myself included, yeah. many times. But being able to just notice what is and, and be curious about it and say, you know, I was working with a client the other day and um, I mean, kind of taking them through this journey of, of organizational change and in particular, how to start it, how to start organizational change and just observing that, you know, two things, one, wow, you guys are really good at, at, at sharing your data in PowerPoint, right? You're really good at that. Really, really good at that. And that has a role. Um, and yet do you see the cost? 
do you see the cost of of being really good at that? And then, you know, you can zoom out too and say, well, as an organization, as a group of leaders, I love the the Pema Chodron quote that I'm going to paraphrase, but it's, you know, basically our superpowers are also our neuroses. And as an organization, you know, the thing that brought you to the success that you have had at this moment is stuff that has worked for you. And yet things are always changing and you may want to do something differently, but don't try to push that away. Right. I mean, that, that, if you try to push it away, first of all, it won't work. And, and cause you'll resist it. And second of all, that's good stuff. You just want to <laughs> add to it. You want to, you yeah, want to be yeah. more curious. You want to introduce the, the coaching habit as you, as you talk about. That's great. Thanks. Chris, that's really helpful. That's I'm just, trying to find ways to write about this at the moment. And that's just useful to hear you talk that through with me. Great. Thank you. All right, sir. This was lovely. I hope this isn't the last time we, we chat. I hope so too. I really enjoyed it. Okay. Thanks so much, Michael. Thanks for listening. To stay in the loop about new episodes and to be eligible for my periodic book bundle giveaways, sign up for the breakdown newsletter at chrisclearfield.com slash giveaway. So what's this giveaway? Every few months, I bundle together three or four influential books, often written or recommended by guests from the show, and I give them away to a few lucky listeners. I'll include a signed copy of Meltdown, and because I'm friends with many of my fellow authors, I try to get their books signed as well, so you definitely don't want to miss out on that. Go to chrisclearfield.com giveaway to get on the list. Finally, join your fellow listeners, subscribe to the show, and share it with your friends. And if you love the show, Give us a five-star rating in your favorite podcast app. Even one extra review helps us get an edge on the algorithm so more people can find us. And before we roll the credits, remember, if you're a business owner ready to transform your business and your life, find out more about my approach to coaching and sign up for a free intro session at chrisclearfield.com slash make the leap. That's all one word, make the leap. The Breakdown with Chris Clearfield is a team effort. The inimitable Rain Avant is our assistant producer and makes everything run smoothly. Gabe Turner and Claire Skinner help make the amazing content here and on my newsletter, available at chrisclearfield.com slash the breakdown. Laura Stack is our editor and our theme was composed by the creative team at Spiky Blimp. Thanks so much for listening and be well until our next breakdown.